Back in 2003, the British government sent out an email to people asking for volunteers to go to Iraq for three months to administer the country before we handed it back to the Iraqis. Emma Skye, who developed great resilience as the only girl in a British boarding school and who had a passion for making peace, answered the call. Insurgents tried to assassinate me during my first week. They came to the front door of the house in which I was living in downtown Kirkuk and they fired rockets into it. Soon after that assassination attempt, Emma Skye would become a key advisor to the most senior U.S. military commanders on the ground. What she learned during her many years in Iraq is essential knowledge for those responsible for assessing the threat posed by ISIS and developing the most effective course of action. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest, Emma Skye, is the author of The Unraveling, High Hopes and Missed Opportunities in Iraq. She is now a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. Emma Skye, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Thank you. And do you consider yourself insanely curious? Well, I've never put those two words together before, so I consider myself curious. I worry about being thought of as insane. Some people would consider you a bit insane for the route you took into Iraq, and we're going to get to that in a moment, but let me start with, it's hard to know where to start, but let me start with the latest news, because just as I walked into this studio, I flipped on CNN, and one of their reporters, Nick Peyton Walsh, who is in a, a place that you know very well and have spent a lot of time in Erbil, in the Kurdish region uh, of Iraq, and he was actually following Kurdish soldiers who are now, he reports, I believe he said about 20 miles or so from Raqqa. Is that how you pronounce it, by the way? Raqqa. Raqqa. He said they're getting near Raqqa. He said they were not heavily armed, but they obviously have U.S. Uh, and allied air support, uh, and it's the open desert there, but not heavily armed. And I just thought, have you, have you seen those reports of the Kurdish fighters, the Peshmerga, moving close to Raqqa, and what do you make of them? I've seen reports of Kurds moving into Sinjar in northern Iraq, where they've managed to take back Sinjar from the Islamic State. And you can see across northern Iraq, where the Kurds have really been stopping the advance of the Islamic State with the support of the coalition air power. Inside Syria, it's a more complicated picture, and it's quite hard to know what is happening from day to day. I know there have been more air attacks on Raqqa, but I don't know how far local forces have managed to move towards Raqqa. What do you, Emma Skye, want to know right now that we don't know that's sort of critical to our understanding of how the world should be approaching ISIS? I think we have to think much more what, a, what does a post-ISIS world actually look like. We get very much focused on the, you know, the day-to-day -day fighting against ISIS without really understanding that ISIS is a symptom of much deeper pathologies in the Middle East. And what would that post-ISIS world look like? Because it can't look like a pre-ISIS world. That's what created ISIS. And the way in which the fighting against ISIS goes is critically important, because it's crucial that local Sunni Arab forces are the ones who defeat ISIS. If it is all foreign forces 
if it is Iranian-backed Shia militias, if it is Russia, if it is, you know, Assad's forces, all this does is create more and more grievances that will pave the way for son of ISIS to occur in the future. So the only way really to defeat ISIS, ideologically and militarily, is for the Sunnis of Iraq and Syria to defeat ISIS. And they're only going to turn against ISIS when they can see that there are better options, that they're supported, and they've got a say in the government of both Iraq and Syria. So now let me rewind just a little bit to a scene in your memoir, uh, which is called The Unraveling. And it's about your time in Iraq. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to your time in Iraq uh, soon. But, but this is a moment from later in your book after you had left your formal assignment in Iraq and you were back visiting. And you went to Erbil in July of 2014 and checked into the Rotana Hotel July 2014, it's just when the world was sort of discovering this phenomenon called Islamic State, and you spoke to somebody who you didn't know, but who explained to you why he was going to be supporting Islamic State in the short term. Right, so that was an insurgent with a large mustache. So when I had been working in Iraq before with the U.S. Army, I had interacted a fair amount with insurgents trying to get them out of the insurgency and into the political process. So I went back to Erbil in the summer of 2014. In fact, I'd been miles away. I'd been on horseback in Kyrgyzstan going along the Silk Road when the Islamic State swept into Mosul. And I was getting all these messages from people in the Pentagon, people in the media asking me, what's going on in northern Iraq? So I flew back from the stands where I'd been traveling into northern Iraq. And one of the people I met, well, it wasn't one, it was, it was a few people I met were people associated with the insurgency. Now, these are guys with mustaches, and they saw themselves very much as part of the nationalist insurgency. You know, a few years previously, they had turned against al-Qaeda in Iraq and aligned with the U.S. Army. So they had had previous interaction with the U.S. Army. And when I met them, you know, they were explaining to me that they were no longer playing that same role. They had looked at the Islamic State and they had looked at the what they perceived as the Iranian-backed regime of Nouri al-Maliki, the prime minister, and concluded that the Islamic State was the lesser of two evils. So they told me this was a broad Sunni uprising, that the Islamic State was only a small part of this broad Sunni uprising, and that they aimed to overthrow the government of Maliki and once they'd overthrown Maliki, then they would turn against the Islamic State. And I looked at them and I said, aren't you guys deluded? Haven't you seen what's happening inside Syria? The Islamic State will completely take over. And, you know, I referred to, in the conversation I had with them, I referred to the Islamic State as the beards, because these were the nationalist insurgents who all got the big moustaches. So here was a man who, who clearly grew up in this culture and in your view, was delusional because he thought they could take care of the Islamic State once they finished with Maliki. Yes. And I thought it was absolutely delusional because next door inside Syria, that uprising had begun as, you know, very peaceful demonstrations by, you know, young people, secular people against the regime. It quickly, the nature of that opposition quickly changed when Assad allowed out of his jails uh, Islamist fighters. 
And he did this knowing that they would then take a prominent role within the opposition that would undermine how the opposition was seen in the international arena. So that had already happened inside Syria. And so these guys in Iraq, I told them that it's totally delusional to think that their strategy was going to work. They would soon be taken over completely by the Islamic State. Have you been in touch with any of those people since it has come to pass that Islamic State has, has indeed indeed controls a large swath of territory, larger than in 2014 of summer? I mean, I've not been in touch with them since, but I've heard about you know, what's happened to them. So either they grew beards and joined the Islamic State, or they were quickly killed. There was no place for them. I mean, they tried to align at some stage with the Islamic State, which was the time when I was visiting, but very, very quickly, they either were killed or grew beards. You really wound up in Iraq, I wouldn't say accidentally, you made a choice, but it was really an unlikely place for you with your background to wind up. Well, it is, I have to say, it is a bit of an unlikely story. So back in 2003, the British government sent out an email to people asking for volunteers to go to Iraq for three months to administer the country before we handed it back to the Iraqis. And I was somebody who was very much against the war. And I thought, this is my opportunity to go out to Iraq to apologize to Iraqis and to help them rebuild their country. I'd spent the previous decade in Israel-Palestine, working on projects to build up the capacity of the Palestinian Authority and to strengthen relations between Israelis and Palestinians. So I thought I had some useful skills to offer. And just to stop you for a moment there, I was fascinated that you have deep experience both on the Israeli side and the Palestinian side. You, uh, I remember you describing your experience living on a kibbutz as well as with the Palestinians. Yes, I mean, when I left high school, I'd spent a year on a kibbutz in Israel, and that had very much shaped me who I was or who I am as a person. So every morning I'd got up at dawn to go and milk the cows, and every evening I'd sat around the campfire with young people from all over the world discussing the meaning of life and how to bring about world peace. And I was a student at Oxford, so I went from kibbutz to Oxford. And while I was there, I changed degree to focus on the Middle East, to study Arabic and Hebrew. And, you know, when you're a student, you're always looking for what's your purpose in life. And I decided that my purpose was to try and help bring about peace in the Middle East. I was adamant that I wanted to spend my life focused on trying to bring about peace in the world. So this email goes out asking for volunteers, uh, not paid volunteers, to go to Iraq and help administer the country for a short period of time after that quick uh, victory by U.S. forces along with its allies. And you wind up where in Iraq? Well, I respond to the email, you know, agreeing to volunteer. And I didn't get a briefing before I left. I just had one phone call from a British official that said, get to the Royal Air Force base called Brides Norton. So get to RAF Brides Norton, jump on a plane to Basra, and you'll be met there by somebody holding a sign with your name on it and taken to the nearest hotel. Well, you know, it sounded plausible. This was June 2003. The invasion had been in March. The war was supposedly over. And I assumed the British government knew what it was doing. It just hadn't told me. So I followed the instructions. I found my way to RAF Bryce Norton. I jumped on a military plane. I got to Basra. And as soon as I landed, 
you know, I looked around, where's the person waiting for me? And, you know, there was no person waiting for me. There's no sign with my name on it. And, you know, that was my welcome to Iraq. So I spent my first night sleeping in the airport at Basra. Every, you know, I just slept in a corridor alongside all these British soldiers who had stripped down to their underwear because it was 150 degree heat. And I thought, you know, what am I supposed to do here? So the next day I found a C-130 going up to Baghdad. And that's a cargo, that's a military cargo plane. Yeah, one of those big planes. So I jumped on that plane, got to Baghdad, and from there made my way to the Republican Palace, which was the headquarters of the Coalition Provisional Authority. So I turned up and I said, you know, hello, it's Emma from England, come to volunteer. <laughs> and, you know, I was pleased to find my name was on a list. So that was quite reassuring after what had happened in Basra. And I received a briefing from a British colonel. I'm sorry, but thank God the British make lists. I, 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 it, it just that that tri it triggered Gilbert and Sullivan. You know that song? They put him on the list. They put him on the so they put you on the list. Thank goodness. So my name was on a list, but this you know British colonel gave me my first briefing and said, you know the situation in Iraq is stable. It's fine. Biggest threat to your life will be from trigger happy Americans. So that was a little bit less reassuring. And after a week in Baghdad, they said, oh, we've got enough people here, try the north. So I got on another plane, I went up to Mosul, there was somebody there. And I kept sort of traveling, I went to Erbil, and they said, we've got people here, go to Kirkuk. So I went down to Kirkuk. And when I arrived, I was told that I was now the senior civilian responsible for the province and reporting to Ambassador Bremer, who was the head of the Coalition Provisional Authority. And, uh... I guess you introduced yourself to Ambassador Bremer, but you, you, Ambassador Bremer was the civilian in charge of the Coalition Provisional Authority, but really the most captivating stories in, in your life have to do with your interactions and, and your, your role with the U.S. military. So how did you go from the civilian side to being a, a key advisor to the U.S. military leadership in Iraq? The story of how Emma Skye, a British graduate of Oxford who opposed the war in Iraq, came to be a key advisor to the U.S. military leadership in that country and relevant lessons for how the world deals with ISIS in a moment on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. As the national and international conversation is focused on ISIS, my guest is Emma Skye, a British graduate of Oxford, fluent in Arabic and Hebrew, who wound up in Iraq as a key advisor to the U.S. military. Her captivating memoir of her years in Iraq is called The Unraveling. We pick up her story as she arrives in the Kurdish region of Iraq in 2003. Well, you know, I was suddenly put in this position in Kirkuk, and I'd you know, never been a mayor of a town in Britain, let alone a governor of a province in a foreign land. So this was all kind of a bit of a shock to me. And I realized that Iraqis actually took my new appointment quite seriously when insurgents tried to assassinate me during my first week. So they came to the front door of the house in which I was living in downtown Kirkuk and they fired rockets into it. And really, you know, I was very fortunate to survive it. The house was well made. 
One of the rockets came up into the room where I was in bed, but the explosion was taken out in the ceiling. But, you know, I knew I had to move out of the house after this. It just couldn't be defended. My house was no more. So I went to the Kukuk government building that same day, and it was swarming, swarming with U.S. soldiers. It was supposed to be the headquarters of the provincial Iraqi government, but the U.S. military had taken over the building, and they'd taken over almost every office in the building and put the name of their unit on it. So I grabbed hold of one soldier, and, you know, I'd never had any interaction with the military before, let alone the U.S. military, but I did what you're told to do. Whenever you arrive in a foreign land, you know, I grabbed this guy and said, take me to your chief. <laughs> so he took, me, he took me up the stairs to this large office that had previously served as the governor of Kirkuk's. And he took me in and there on the couch, lounging with his feet up, was Colonel Mavel, who was the brigade commander for the province. And I introduced myself to him and said, you know, Colonel, it's all slightly awkward and embarrassing, but my house has been blown up. And I just wonder if there's any chance you might have a spare tent that you could assign to me on the airfield. You know, he jumped up from lounging on the couch and he was going, we're going to hunt these people down. And I was like, no, you're not. You know, we don't want a death warrant issued against them. I just want a tent. <laughs> Explain to him they're attacking me because we shouldn't really be here. That's why they're attacking. It's a very different interaction. And I went back to see him the next day. I was like, oh, my God. So I went back to see him the next day. And I brought with me my laptop, on which I downloaded the Fourth Geneva Convention. And, you know, I pulled a chair up next to his, put the computer on his desk, and read to him the convention line by line. And I said, Colonel, if I find you violating any of these articles, I will take you to The Hague. And this was very early days. It's before I knew you couldn't take Americans to The Hague, and Americans aren't signed up to the International Criminal Court. But that was our, you know, that was my first interaction with the US military, and it wasn't exactly positive. But for the colonel, he was just delighted that I'd arrived. He thought I was the first of the civilians coming to replace the military. So he was lovely to me. He was very kind. He made me cups of tea. He said, I'm going to take you everywhere, introduce you to everybody. And then me and my soldiers are going home. So there was that really that sense that this was a very short-term military engagement, and he, did, he clearly wasn't... Uh taken aback by your initial confrontation with him. Well, he and his soldiers had jumped into Iraq in March, had opened up the Northern Front. And so they'd jumped in, taken Kirkuk, and in their minds, it was time to go home. And, and you, by the way, literally jumped in. This was the which division of paratroopers? Yeah, the 173rd Airborne Brigade out of Vicenza. And so, long story short, you become Colonel Mayville's what would you call it, the chief political advisor? I think you had a specific term for it. Well, my job was actually the government coordinator for the Coalition Provisional Authority, reporting to Ambassador Bremer in Baghdad. But, you know, I was there all on my own. And whenever military, senior military guys came to the province, I would be the colonel's political advisor. On the rare occasion that any civilian visited the province, then he would be my military advisor. So we were, you know, joined at the hip, a very, very close team. I mean, once he realized that he wasn't going anywhere and I wasn't the first of a large group of civilians to arrive, there weren't any more coming, he provided me with full support and put some of his paratroopers to work with me as my staff 
and did everything he could to make me as successful as possible on the ground. And you asked me at the beginning, was I insanely curious? And I think when I met Colonel Mavel, he was hugely curious. He wanted to understand everything he could about the Middle East. And I was the nearest thing he had to a expert on the Middle East. And I knew nothing about Iraq. I'd never been to Iraq before. My whole experience really was in the Palestinian territories. But he really, he wanted to know everything he could about the province. And together we went to visit all the different leaders of the different communities. We would be in their houses for meals. We would go and visit them in their offices. We really set out to understand as best we could the province in which we found ourselves. And all these personal relationships you established, and, and right now you're teaching at Yale, and that you know, one of the key themes when you study history is, is, is it, are there forces, uh, broader forces beyond the, the individual that determine the course of history, or do individuals determine the course of history? And by my reading of it, you were, I mean, clearly you recognize that it's both factors, but you were doing everything in your power to try to ensure that individuals properly cultivated could determine the course of history. Am I misreading that? No, I think that's true. I think I really, I mean, I still really do believe in the strength, importance of relationships and the power that individuals have. Individuals really do have agency. And I think when you look at how we were on the ground in Kirkuk, we were successful at empowering local leaders, putting them very quickly back in charge of their province empowering them to make decisions. But I think what I learned through my time in Iraq is that thing about bigger forces. Because no matter how successful we were locally, decisions have been taken right above our heads at the national level, which had devastating effects on the country, including on our province. And that was debathification and disbanding the Ba'ath Party because in so doing, the coalition had removed the sinews that, you know, the sinews of the country that really held it together. And this created a power vacuum. People were scared and they formed gangs to protect themselves. And militias and insurgent groups flourished. And, you know, foreign fighters could come into the country. And all of this set Iraq on the descent into civil war. So there's nothing that we could do locally or, I mean, we could do what we could do locally, but above us and around us, bigger forces were at play. And that civil war, you know, and, and we've read about it in other places too, but the way you describe it, I mean, it was really horrifying, not only the deaths themselves, but how people were killed. And you were able to tell by being there in Iraq whether an individual was the victim of a Sunni death squad or a Shia death squad. And just describe that to me and how you sort of learned that. So even through the worst periods of the Civil War, Kirkuk really stayed out of it. I mean, the relationships between the people in Kirkuk were strong enough to withstand the worst aspects of the Civil War. But in Baghdad, and I moved to Baghdad in 2007 to work then as the political advisor to General Odierno, who had been the boss of Colonel Mavel. That's how I'd met him in 0304. So when I went back to work for General Odierno, this was during the surge. And the levels, you know, levels of violence were horrific. So every day these bodies would turn up in the street. And if they'd been drilled through the head, you knew that was a sheer death squad killing. If the heads had been chopped off, you knew that was a Sunni death squad killing. 
you sort of took that for granted at some point. Does anybody know how that evolved? I don't know. It just became a trademark, a signature killing, like leaving a calling card so people knew who had done it. Hmm. But every day these bodies would just be found in the river or they'd be found in the streets. And people thought the country was lost. They thought it had really gone over into the abyss. Now, again, given the forces and, and the overwhelming amount of violence, and, and, and I should add that at this point, so you mentioned the surge, so just to reintroduce the surge for people and those of us who, you know, who lived through it, and um, except for the very youngest members of the audience, we remember when the Bush administration said we're going to send, what was it, an extra 30,000 troops to, yeah. to really try to take hold. And this is when the alliances began forming between the U.S. and the people who had been part of Saddam Hussein's military in some fashion or another who had become insurgents fighting the U.S. and now suddenly were coming back to the U.S. side. Describe how that happened and if through that model there may be something we can take away as we move forward and try to assess how we deal with Islamic State. So some of the Sunni tribes out in Anbar, which is in the west of Iraq, had really had enough of Al-Qaeda. And, you know, Al-Qaeda had chopped off too many heads, taken too many women as wives, had just upset the local power structure, you know, hierarchy of the province, and they had started to turn against Al-Qaeda. And they saw an opportunity to realign with the U.S. against Al-Qaeda and to gain U.S. support to protect them from what they saw as the Iranian-backed Shia death squads, which had virtually you know, taken control of Baghdad at this stage. So the surge had a, a huge psychological impact on Iraqis. And during this period, we saw the Sunni awakening spread. So it spread beyond Anbar. It spread to Baghdad and Diyala, Salahdi and Mosul, throughout the provinces. And that brought our casualties down hugely. By the way, just give us a, just a thumbnail description for the general audience, the Sunni awakening. The Sunni awakening, it was led initially by Sheikh Sitar Abu Risha, who was from Ambar province. And he and his tribesmen stood up against Al-Qaeda. And they started to fight back against Al-Qaeda. And more and more tribes joined with Sheikh Sitar to fight against Al-Qaeda. And Sheikh Sitar, by the way, is somebody who you knew personally and who General Odierno knew personally? Yes, and he was assassinated in September 2007. But before he was killed, the awakening had had a huge impact. Just, uh, again, to bring it to you and what you experienced on the ground, when did you meet this individual? And were you with General Odierno? And what did the conversation, what was the conversation like? Because presumably you met him at the very beginning of the awakening or, or even before. Just describe that sequence for me. So I can't remember the exact time when I first met with Sheikh Sitar. But when I came back to Iraq at the beginning of 2007, General Odierno told me that he wanted me to go with him wherever he went. So he'd personally written to me and said, I want you as my political advisor. You have a very different perspective on the world from the military, and I want to see how you see things, so you're to come with me wherever I go. So whenever the general went out to Anbar or anywhere else in the country, I was always at his side. So Sheikh Sitar was just one of the many 
many leaders that we met with who became part of the Sunni awakening. So I met with leaders, Sunni leaders, inside Baghdad to try and broker relations between them and the Iraqi government. It was an extraordinary period because when the Sunnis turned against Al-Qaeda, our casualties came way down. So the casualties of US soldiers, but also Iraqi civilians, the numbers went way, way down. How did it unravel? Tell us how that fell apart with so much momentum. We believed and we hoped that Iraq was really headed on the path towards stability. The civil war seemed to be behind and Iraqis were optimistic about the future. And they turned out, you know, the US military had brokered all these truces and these ceasefires, helped bring everybody into the political process. And the hope was that the elections in 2010 would bring about this peace settlement and power sharing for the country. And so in the run-up to the elections in 2010, there was great excitement. And the participation, the turnout in the elections was very high. Those who had previously fought or been insurgents turned out as candidates in the elections. People who previously boycotted the elections turned out to vote. And one bloc campaigned on a platform of no to sectarianism, Iraq for all Iraqis. And this platform appealed to people because it had enough of the religious parties and it won the votes of the Sunni population, the secular Shia and Iraq's minorities. And it won the most seats of any bloc in the elections. And when Maliki heard the results, he refused to believe them. He was the incumbent, he had all the tools of the state at his disposal and he refused to believe the results. So he demanded a recount and he tried to use debathification to annul uh, the votes of some Iraqi candidates and to kick them out of the process. And he intimidated his rivals. He put pressure on the judiciary. He did all of these things possible to try and change the election results. Despite all of that, the results still held. And there was disagreement within the US system about what to do. This has been going on for months and months and months. And on the one hand, General Odierno, my boss, believed that the US should uphold the election results and uphold the right of the winning bloc, Iraqia, to have first go at trying to form the government. He didn't think they'd be able to succeed with their leader, Ayed Alawi, as prime minister, but he thought it could lead to an agreement between Alawi and Maliki on how to share power, or the selection of a third candidate to be prime minister. But in the end, Vice President Joe Biden decided to follow the advice of the ambassador, which was to stick with Nouriel Maliki. He believed that Maliki was an Iraqi nationalist. Maliki would give us a follow-on security agreement to keep troops in Iraq after 2011. And he thought Maliki was our friend. So he put the weight of US support behind Maliki. Problem was that Iraqi politicians didn't want to keep Maliki in power because they'd grown very scared of him. And in previous years, they'd tried on a number of occasions to do a vote of no confidence against him in the parliament. And each time the US had jumped in and said, look, don't do this now. Country's too unstable. If you want change, bring it about through a national election. And yet when they had a national election and Maliki you know, wasn't the winning bloc, the US decided that it was in US best interest to try and keep him in power. But they couldn't persuade Iraqia to support Maliki. 
and this provided an opening for the Iranians. And at this stage, you know, prior to this, the Iranians' influence had been well down because U.S. was seen as the big power in Iraq. But Iran, particularly their general Qasem Soleimani, who heads up the Al-Quds force, he decided that he could get the Sadrists, who are the arch-rivals of Maliki, to support Maliki for a second term on condition that all U.S. forces would be withdrawn from Iraq. And that's exactly what happened. Which leads to one of the memorable quotes from your memoir, which might have been during that 2014 visit, but but the question posed by by one of the Kurdish leaders to you, you know, uh, basically, how could it be that America handed Iraq to Iran? Yeah, this was the standard narrative in the Middle East, because everybody thinks, you know, it's America, superpower, can put a man on the moon. And the narrative then became that either America had handed Iraq to Iran on a silver plate, or that Iran had kicked America out of Iraq. But Iran became the dominant power. And as the US withdrew its hard power, withdrew its troops, it wasn't engaged politically and diplomatically in the way that it had been before. We withdrew our soft power along with our hard power. And so at this point, so this really brings us now, now let's fast forward again to today. So, oh, and by the way, just to give people a sense, I mean, all these things you're relaying in these these alliances, the shifting alliances, uh, you know, individual components of that alliance changing their position, you know, changing their position depending on on what they saw around them. You know, you didn't, you don't know this from a distance. You were there on the ground at the time. And I think, you know, some of the most incredible stories to me are just your travels with General Odierno going out seeking the best intelligence you could find. And if you could just relay one or two of the most memorable field trips you took with General Odierno, because you were not sheltered at all from the front line during all these years in Iraq. Wow. I mean, every day we were out visiting troops and visiting Iraqis. There's one image that really stays in my mind was the visit we made out to Bakuba in Diyala in 2007. And at this stage, Al-Qaeda in Iraq had taken over the town. It was like a ghost town. We were battling really, really hard to push back on Al-Qaeda. And we go and meet with the battalion commander of the area in a bombed out medical center. It was the US battalion commander. And we're all sitting on in upturned cartons. And the battalion commander has unrolled a map of the area and he's pointing at it with a stick. And I think why that image stays so much in my mind is because even though we have all this technology and all these weapons, that war at the end of the day is still a very human activity fought by real individuals. Behind us, you could see all these soldiers who just slumped everywhere, exhausted, and they're just sleeping, sitting up against the wall or just, you know, against each other. That it really is a deeply human and a deeply horrific activity. So I always have that image in my mind. General Odiano and I are probably about two of the most different people you could ever imagine. We don't have anything in common. And people always tell you as a leader, you must surround yourself by people who are different from you. And people normally don't. They normally, you know, surround themselves by people who are similar to them. But General Odierno asked me specifically to be his advisor because I thought so differently to him. 
And he said, you know, you've got to tell me when I'm screwing up. You've got to speak out. And I think it takes a lot of courage and self-awareness to do something like that. So he was somebody who I liked very much and I respected very much. I do want to come back to the Islamic State question in a second, but this might be a good time to just spend 10 minutes because you have such an unusual childhood that seems to have in some way, you know, without the military training, made you so resilient. Different people gain their resilience in different ways. In a moment, the unusual challenges that Emma Skye faced as a child, which certainly seemed to have helped her face the challenges of living in Iraq during a war. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. I suppose my whole childhood was quite unusual and it had enabled me to, I had to be resilient, it was be resilient or sink or swim. So I went to boarding school from age seven and I went to a number of boarding schools. In one boarding school, I was the only girl. So really from age seven to 13, I was in a very male dominated environment and tough. I mean, little boys don't like having girls around. So I really, you know, I had to be tough and I had to learn to give as much as I got. And I think that very tough male boarding school environment really made me who I am. I don't give up easily. I'm able to take some pretty hard knocks and, and keep going. So it did have, it did have a, a large effect on me. You described it as almost a Lord of the Flies kind of experience in the boarding school, you know, with perhaps a little bit of humorous exaggeration. But what was it that you experienced as a, you know, from ages 7 to 13? Well, in that time, I went to three boarding schools. So one had five girls in it. And that was, that was a lovely school. And that was very much more a family-oriented one. Then I went to one in Northern Ireland, so very, you know, I was introduced to sectarianism at age 10 because it was, are you Protestant or Catholic? And I had no idea. And then I went to the Lord of the Flies type one from age 11 to 13, which was really quite horrific. So they hated having a girl in the school. They thought the girl, me as the girl, was going to pollute their school and change its whole nature. So... You know, people would call me horrible names, thump me. They would just really be nasty bullies. Thump you mean hit you? Yeah. What was your family life like? You know, who who could you go home to at that point? And well, you were at boarding school, so you're... Yeah, you're stuck with it. So you either have to thump them back or you have to avoid their thumps. So what did you do? Or you just take their thumps. What did you do? Well, I learned, you know, I could run as fast as any of them. I played soccer as well as any of them. So I just had to become as tough as they were. You say in your memoir, your your father, uh, uh, your biological father left when you were a newborn, basically, right? Yeah, I was one month old. It sounds like your mother must have been very resilient because uh, I was really struck by the fact that she took a job cleaning, uh, basically a house cleaner in, in a boarding school, right? Which then gave you your first opportunity at a good education. Yes, so she was working at the school and they allowed me, because the school was in the middle of nowhere, they allowed me to go to the school. So it meant I was growing up around boys even though I didn't have my own father. 
but then she remarried and she remarried a teacher but the teacher then left and disappeared from our lives as well so it was not i mean the school provided me with stability but it wasn't a stable home life clearly you've already thought about this and even you know alluded to it in the book but you know perhaps there was something there that really did make it possible for you to be what what was it that Colin Powell said to you when he when you met him Oh, he was, you know, how can, he said, I heard about you, a British woman with, you know, three and a half thousand male paratroopers, how do you cope? And I just thought, this is really familiar, this is, there's nothing unusual in this, except for the, they were much nicer than those nasty boys had been. As Emma Sky looks forward, now you're in this safe haven at Yale University. Are, are you going to be a teacher for a long time, or do you want to get back in the field? They're not incompatible, obviously. <laughs> You know, teaching has been very good for me, very therapeutic. And my students at Yale are wonderful young people, and they've given me hope and optimism for the future. But I'd be lying if I didn't admit to you that I have itchy feet, that I really miss the Middle East. The final question I will ask you is, have any of your students asked you a question that really forced you to pause and say, you know, Boy, there's something that somebody just nailed something with that question. Well, students being so, you know, naive and innocent, I remember one turned to me and said, you know, Professor, how does it feel that everything you've worked on in your life has been a complete failure? And how did you answer that? So it doesn't feel good at all. It doesn't feel good at all. I mean, you know, they're saying, well, if you knew it was all going to fail, would you have bothered anyway? I said, yes, because you've got to believe that you can make a difference. You've got to try. It's the journey. It's having, you know, it really is the journey. I think living a life with purpose, being dedicated to things is important. Even if it doesn't succeed, the effort in itself is worthwhile. And why I really sat down and wrote the book was because I was, you know, I thought, what has all this sacrifice been for? All those deaths, all that loss of blood and treasure, what had it all been for? And I thought, if we don't learn anything from it, then it's been for nothing. And I thought, I've witnessed so much, I've been in so many, you know, seen so much, that I'm going to record it. And I want to, you know, I feel that we honour the lives that were lost by trying to learn the right lessons. And I wanted to pay tribute to the US military, the soldiers who tried so hard. And even though there's nothing to be seen now from that effort, it happened. It really did happen. And I wanted to pay tribute to Iraq. People too often just see that country as a place of violence and of victims. And yet, it is a country for the most extraordinary people I've met anywhere in the world. You know, it just occurs to me that the other day, uh, yesterday I had somebody driving me to the airport. And we started talking, and he, he t- started talking about his son, who from, from very early on wanted to be a pilot, learned how to pl- fly a plane at the age of 14, uh, joined the military, became a, a medevac helicopter pilot, and now is in the special forces. Some of these uh, uh, members of the U.S. military may be going back on the ground. What do you have to communicate to them? What would you tell them if they are about to deploy uh, before they go to whether it's Iraq or Syria? What would you tell them? Well, my message to them would be, you know, to shake their hands, look them in the eye and say, good luck. 
you can make a difference. But my message to the politicians who send them is make sure that their sacrifice is for something. Make sure it's worthwhile. Because these guys, these men and women, have put so much of themselves into, you know, the wars since 9-11. And there's not a lot to show from it. And if all that we're doing is creating more enemies, then there's something wrong with our strategy. So I'd say to the politicians, what is the end state that we're trying to achieve? What is that political outcome that we're trying to achieve? And how is this use of military force going to help us achieve that outcome? Don't just put it on the soldiers, the Marines and airmen. This has to have a political solution at the end. So if you're using the military, make sure you are focused on how that military peace contributes to an overall political outcome. Emma Sky, thank you so much for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Well, thank you very much. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes. If you don't know how, just go to my homepage on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it slash wavemaker and click on the purple iTunes logo. Or you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the weekly episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. Thanks to my editor, Brian Morris. I'm Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious.